0: Remain standing in reverence for the word. We're reading from Genesis chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was all over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let their earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so the earth was brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kind and trees bearing fruit according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night." and let them be for signs of the seasons and for days and years, and let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in their expanses of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanses of heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures of every living creature that moves, in which the waters swarm according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind, and the livestock according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the heavens, and over the livestock, and all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Amen. You may be seated.
1: It's a lot of scripture, Ron. And you nailed it. That's beautiful. I want to start uh, actually with a poem. This is uh, from Mary Oliver. This is a, a collection of her poetry. Uh, Mary Oliver fans out here. Yeah, she's excellent. This one's called Swan. Listen to this. Did you too see it drifting all night on the Black River? Did you see it in the morning rising into the silvery air, an armful of white blossoms? a perfect commotion of silk and linen as it leaned into the bondage of its wings, a snowbank, a bank of lilies, biting the air with its black beak. Did you hear it, fluting and whistling, a shrill, dark music like the rain pelting the trees, like a waterfall, knifing down the black ledges? And did you see it, finally, just under the clouds, a white cross streaming across the sky, its feet like black leaves? Its wings like the stretching light of the river. And did you feel it in your heart, how it pertained to everything? And have you too finally figured out what beauty is for? And have you changed your life? It's maybe a little bit reductionistic to refer to them simply as nature poets, but they're are, there are poets who are, who are known specifically for their observations about the natural world. Think of Williams, William Wordsworth or John Keats or Emily Dickinson, Robert Frost, or Mary Oliver. They use their gifts, their creative gifts, to inspire reflection on the beauty and the power of the natural world. Their poetry, I think, whether they're believers or not, is a testament to creation's overwhelming power to demand, to demand from us a response. To sit us down and to demand that we consider what it has to teach. Swan, this this poem in particular makes this quite explicit. Though Mary Oliver was not a Christian, her, her poem expresses the deep mystery of what lies behind the swan's beauty. And those last lines state the question quite directly and quite elegantly, they say. And did you feel it in your heart? How it, this beauty, the beauty of this creature pertains to everything. Have you too finally figured out what beauty is for? And she even suggests that there's some response from us, pragmatic response from us that, that, that it demands. She asks, and have you changed your life? Have you responded accordingly in your life? to this beauty that's before us. I would argue that if we have eyes to see, we are each confronted with echoes of the transcendent every time we allow ourselves to take in the natural world. And it's not a grant, it's not a given that we will allow ourselves to take in the natural world. We're far more, so many of us are far more likely to have this thing as a barrier or some other distraction, some other preoccupation. But if we will give ourselves over to seeing it, we are confronted with echoes of the transcendent. In Portland, Portland, right here, our town, we live in a, a very urban environment, of course, with the blessings and the curses that that, that that entails. But as far as cities go, it's a very, very natural city. It's very green. It's very lush. The city itself is green. I, was talk- I don't even remember who that was. I was talking with somebody recently about how when they... Their friend described flying into Portland and from the, the, you know, the bird's eye view up in an airplane, it just looking like a massive forest. The city is green. It's overgrown in places. I I often think of these like beautifully lush overgrown like gardens in the front yards of people's homes just bursting over with this. Actually, this house right here next to the church is kind of prime example of it. And even the, the fig tree that kind of comes into our church park, parking lot just blossoming in the summer. It's about to, with these amazing figs. You should go pick some. actually, no, never mind. Don't worry about the figs. These are for me. When I get a little snacky on a Wednesday up here. We've got uh, the Willamette River, the Columbia Rivers, We've got the rural paradise just outside city limits, be it the vast farmlands, the Columbia River Gorge, Forest Park, the coast, or the mountains. Take the mountains. Take Mount Hood in particular. Mount Hood in particular is special. It's this giant landmark visible almost wherever you are in the city if you can get high enough. If you can just remember to lift your eyes up enough or to get just beyond some of the urban obstruction, Mount Hood is there waiting for you. You Christians, we believe that God made that mountain. God made that mountain. He created Mount Hood as he did every mountain. The Bible mentions mountains then as places of beauty, but more than that, as reminders and representations of others' ideas. The Bible draws on the image of the mountain for its stability, its consistency, its longevity, its nearness to the God who is figuratively depicted as high above. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.20 writes, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he's made. So from the sheer size and scope of a mountain, take Mount Hood, from the sheer size and scope of a mountain, we can infer something about the God we are told created them, that he's he's powerful, at least, He is immense enough to create something that immense, to speak it into existence. He's powerful, but he's also steady, stable, and unchanging enough to preserve these qualities in mountains over time. Over a scale of time that most of us can't even really wrap our our minds around. He's also supremely beautiful and creative enough to design a thing of such immense beauty. And he's generous, willing to give us such a thing to enjoy with its ski slopes and everything else. Interestingly, throughout the Bible, God often chooses uh, mountains to become the places where he does all kinds of things in relationship to his people. He chooses to reveal himself on mountains often. They become reminders of his great covenants, which are all given in like to his people in relationship to mountains, did you know that? So Mount Hood, looming over Portland, such as it is, is not an accident of history. We would say, if we have the ears to hear, it speaks to us about the God who sculpted it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. She who has eyes to see, let her see. Friends, and so it is with all of creation. So let's go back to Genesis 1, which we we started of Genesis 1-1 last week, but now obviously we're considering through chapter 2, verse 3, which was read for us. And, and as I said last week, this isn't a series about Genesis. We're not going to exposit uh this in the way we would um, if this was if that was the purpose, but we're looking to Genesis for uh, what it has to speak about the question at hand. And But I know you can't talk about the creation account in Genesis without talking about, well, how should we basically fundamentally understand this? And, you know, trying to set aside, we're not going to get into the various debates around how to understand Genesis. I just want to suggest a threefold posture for you as a Christian. You can take this or leave it. I suggest that you take it. Um, Obviously, that's why I'm saying it. Uh, First is, first, first idea is this, that whatever the authors of Genesis 1 intended to communicate... We should receive it in humility, as truth, and as the authoritative, truthful, infallible, spirit-inspired word of God. Second, that the authors of Genesis 1, when I say authors, I mean the human author and the divine author who co-authored, who inspired it. So, I use the plural there. The authors of Genesis 1 are claiming that the biblical God created the cosmos and specifically sculpted and ordered it all for his purposes. That, that's one of the fundamental points. Existence, the universe, the earth, it did not blip into existence as random happenstance. Any sort of purely atheistic model of how the origin of the universe came about, we have to reject as people of the scriptures. And third, that the authors of Genesis 1 are writing in a way that was intelligible and situated in the worldview of their ancient Near Eastern audience. So using categories and images that were familiar to them and answering questions that they would have been asking. The flip side of this is that they aren't interested in the kinds of categories and questions that people from our culture with things like a Hubble telescope are interested in asking. They're not they don't have their agenda set to the things that we might like it to be set to as people living in the year 2023. Genesis 1 emphasizes the function, the purpose, and the meaning of the created world rather than the detailed process in any kind of mechanistic way. That's all I'll say about it for now. If we were doing another series, maybe we'd break down all the various views and their strengths and weaknesses, and I love having those conversations, and I'm encouraged if you love having those conversations. And if you want to have those conversations with me, shoot me an email today and let's get something on the calendar. Let's go grab a cup of coffee and just chew on it for a bit. I love that. Just not the, that's just not how we're going to spend our time today. I hope that's understandable why. Hopefully those three, those three points can sit with us all, though. So let's jump into it. As we mentioned last week, verse 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth or the skies and the land. It's either describing the initial act of creation or a summary statement of what follows. But then we get into verse 1-2. The earth was without form and void. It was wild and waste it was this chaotic land and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. so we get this description of this pre-creation state before God is gonna do all this work of forming and organizing and structuring ordering it's crazy it's chaotic but then we get into the account itself Verses 3 through 31 and we're not going to spend a ton of time on it But I just want you to see see the basic structure here. We have we have a really cool parallelism here So first the first three days of creation God basically creates spaces in Verses 3 through 5 we see him create light and darkness to separate them A lot of scholars will say what we're meant to see here is basically a depiction of time Light and darkness receding day and night coming and going the structure of time itself Verses 6 through 8, then he talks about the creation of the skies and the sea. So these two great realms, the skies above and the seas below, created. And then day 3, verses 9 through 13, he, he creates land, the land. He pulls the land up out of the water, recedes the water for the land to appear, and then vegetation on that land. So three spaces. You could almost say time itself, the skies and the seas, and then the land. The next three days, days four through six, then God goes about filling those spaces that he's created, he he inhabits them, he populates them with things. So verses 14 through 19, he populates the skies with lights, the stars, the sun, the moon. It talks about them specifically, you think in that relationship to time, he talks about them given for signs and symbols about the passings of time and those sorts of things. It's loaded with this additional significance. Verses 20 through 23, he then populates the waters and the near sky with creatures, fish, swimming things below, birds up above. And then on the sixth day, he populates the land, the land culminating in the creation of humanity in Adam and Eve in his own image and with shared responsibility. So he creates all of the land-dwelling animals and then the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman, made in his image together together. That's the six days of creation. And then we get into the seventh day there in chapter 2. A seventh day of rest, of dwelling. You could even say, and many do say, I suggest you should say, a day of God's enjoyment of what he's created. It's a day of rest, but it's a day of dwelling alongside this beautiful thing that he's made and enjoying it. And I, I would suggest maybe three things to take away from this overarching account and this idea of God stepping back to admire and to rest in relationship to it. And we don't have a lot of time for these, but I think these are just helpful ways to think about. Wh- so, what did we just read in all of this? One is that God has taken a beautiful, he's made a beautiful canvas that is filled with his creative glory. Remember, this whole thing starts with the chaos. And it's turned into something orderly and purposeful and functional and useful. It's taken something crazy and disordered and it's made something, he's made something beautiful out of it. So you can think of this as as a master craftsman taking something raw, taking a raw block of wood and forming it into something beautiful and indelible and perfect. But not just that, there's a lot of good work, I think compelling work to talk about. What we have here is also rooted in this imagery of God has created a cosmic temple fit for his presence to dwell alongside and within. A cosmic temple filled with his loving presence. And just as a sidebar, that's why the temple and the tabernacle itself is filled with similar images of creation. It's the, the physical temple that Israel encountered God at and within is a picture of what's happening in this larger story, which is the whole of the cosmos is a cosmic temple made good, made appropriate for him to have relationship with them. It's a big idea. I wish we could say more about it for now. Maybe we will later. But then a third idea as well is that he is given a generous hospitable world for his image bearing representatives. The idea is that he's taken what's crazy and he's made it suitable for the people that he longed to make, for them to thrive, for them to live, for them to function. They could not function in that formless and wild world. They'd be chewed up by it. But he's he's lovingly created all these realms in which they can properly find themselves and they can flourish. And this is an image of his generosity. So that's what God did. I think at a very, obviously, a very, very basic level, that's what you're meant to take from Genesis 1 into the beginning of chapter 2. That's the basic framework that the Bible gives us for creation. But what I, what I want to point out next is the goodness, because you can skip this, and I've heard a lot of sermons that don't necessarily get into this, which I think is huge, because these words are repeated seven times, this word rather, which is the goodness of what he did. We can get so lost in the, well, how does this fit into this conception of the universe or that, that we miss this really important declaration where God declares seven times, this is good. It is good. Good there comes from the Hebrew word tov, which basically means, of course, good or beautiful, or you could think of working how it's supposed to and appropriate for its purpose. Everything in its right place. This word occurs hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And you can think of this this moment, each of these declarations as God stepping back and admiring what he's made. Recognizing the excellence, the appropriateness, the goodness of it all. He's satisfied with it. He takes joy in it. So it says, light and day and night and time are tov, are good. Sky and sea are Tov, land and plants are Tov, stars and sun and moon are Tov, sea animals and birds are Tov, land animals are Tov, Every, and then he steps back finally, everything, all together, humanity included, is Tov. It is very, 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 really, truly good. It's good. He didn't create something basic. He didn't create something merely functional, as we might use in a denigrating sense. He made it good. Tov. Scott McKnight writes, so everything God created is tov, and when everything is spoken and accomplished, when all the intricate harmonies are formed, God's glory echoes through all creation. Tov me'od. Very good. Very well done. Perfect harmony. What a masterpiece. That's what God's declaring there. The Bible elsewhere describes God as Tov. God does Tov. His activity is Tov. God calls His people to practice Tov, to be a people who emanate Tov in their their relationships with Him and with others. And He has made, in fact, the physical universe itself to be Tov you felt this before? It's like Mary Oliver writing about a swan, this one little piece, this one little creature in the vast array of everything exists, but she zooms in on this and she finds this near infinite beauty and complexity, toveness, to this thing that begs begs all these additional questions. Have you felt that? Have you looked out your window? Have you looked up at the mountain? Looked out to the sea? Looked at a newborn baby and felt that in your heart of hearts? This is good. This is good. Meant to. So, maybe one other thing we'd say about this goodness, this Toveness, and I mentioned this last week. I, I, I think I mentioned this book last week, if I don't, I think it was very quickly. Has anyone read the, the it's like a little novella, it's called Flatland? Yeah. yeah, a couple of you. It's fascinating. It's like, it's a social satire more than anything, but it's this book about basically a two dimensional world called Flatland, where, um, yeah, it, it depicts social relationships in this world that's totally flat, two-dimensional. And basically, they start talking about life in a one-dimensional world where everything's just a point, but things are two-dimensional in their world, so everything's a line. And then uh, they even posit about the existence of a three-dimensional world, or perhaps even a fourth dimension that's full of spiritual significance and so on and so forth. But it's, it's really clever, it's really funny, it's really interesting. Uh, but you know, God could have made the, the world to be flatland, zero color, just lines, just lines, just shapes, just squares, two-dimensional had he chosen to. Perhaps there's a world in which he could have said, "Ah, yeah, that's how people are going to be and how things are going to play out, but he didn't do that. He did not make flatland. He made this world. He made this world full of sight and sound and taste and smell, full of relationships full of, you know, you zoom down into, I I love it in movies, even in dumb movies, where they like zoom down into like a piece of flesh and you keep zooming and then you get that like microscopic and then you get that like sub-microscopic and it's like there's a universe in each little cell. You've seen that before? That's the kind of world we live in. And then you zoom out and then you turn your your vision heavenward and you look up at the stinking universe out there and it just keeps going and going. It's beyond what any of us can conceive. It's big up there and it's big down here. Full, friends it's full this world he has made is so complex and it's good it's good so why did he not just make a flatland wouldn't that have been simpler maybe that would have taken a little less ram from God or something you know uh, I don't know he's not limited he doesn't run on ram Remember from last week, who God is in his fundamental essence is a God of self-giving, abundant, overflowing, generous generous love. And I have to think the the reason he made a world just exploding with life and vitality and diversity and creativity as he had is because he's good, friends. Because he loves you. He loves his creation. He wanted to make something not just for mere function, but that his, created, his image bearers that he's created could enjoy and flourish within, be endlessly fascinated by. This world is a gift. I think if you want to put one very, very simple summary of what Genesis 1 is trying to get you to believe is that this world is a gift from a gift giver who wants you to enjoy it. It's Tove. That's what God did. That's the goodness of what he did. And I think this naturally leads into a third point, which is the call to enjoy what he did. The world is built for enjoyment and for communion with him. And that's why, you know, we we hold up, I'll just say briefly about this, that, you know, in systematic theology, there's a category called general revelation. Special revelation refers more to God, what we find in the scripture. God has shown up, he has spoken clearly uh, in propositional things. Uh, when, a, when he shows up through a prophet, when he appears to someone, this is special revelation. This is the kind of you know, direct, unmissable, clear communication from God to his creation. But there's also general revelation, which theologian Millard Erickson says it's God's communication of himself to all persons at all times and in all places. Special revelation involves God's particular communications and manifestations of himself to particular persons at particular times, communications and manifestations that are available now only by consultation of certain sacred writings. A closer examination of the definition of general revelation discloses it refers to God's self-manifestation through nature and history and even the inner being of the human person. Christians have almost always held these two categories as both meaningful even go to John Calvin, sometimes thought of as a very stuffy kind of theologian and thinker, but he he points at this when he says, there is no spot in the universe in which you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. I think that's true. Do another case study. We talked about mountains, but let's think about galaxies for a second. Galaxies our modern cosmology. It gives us this exponentially almost Incomprehensibly grander vision in some ways of the sheer size and variety of God's creative activity Listen to Job 20 22, 12, which invites us to consider the implications. He says is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars how lofty they are. He's inviting the, these ancient people to, to look out at these stars And to understand that God is even far above and beyond that. He's the God who holds this thing together with his will, with his word. But also, it it gives us even a deeper sense of the radicalness, our modern understanding of God's love for humanity. Like think of Psalm 8, 3 through 4. When I look at, you've heard this before, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This ancient psalmist is looking at the vastness of the world and and understanding, like, it is almost unbelievable that given all of this, you care for us. How much more so now with the imaging we have of the vastness of the universe, if if we have the eyes to see? I mean... People say all the time, like, it's irrational to believe in a God who is very, like, centering, who centers his relationship on humanity because it's like, isn't that just silly? Like, we've got this incredible cosmos out there that's so big and so grand and so wide. To which I just say, yeah, I mean, it's a wild and insane thing to believe, but if it's true, if God has made all of that and still cares for us, how rich and how deep the love of this God is. How marvelous, how beautiful, how wonderful. The psalmists were thinking about this very thing. So everything, everything that he's created, think of animals, think of the rain and the sun. I guess I could just start listing everything I can think of. I won't do that. (laughs) Suffice it to say, everything, everything he's created, everything he's created, can function as a little case study. And his creativity, his power, his glory, it teaches us something about him. We're meant to look through it, to find him. Not just for purely functional terms, but to enjoy them and to enjoy him. We are called to enjoy what he did and to connect with him further through what he's created for us. It's the story of Genesis 1, in part. It's gonna happen probably in every one of these sermons, but you know, the story doesn't end there, okay? We've, this is all fine and dandy, but of course we get, we have Genesis 3, we have the fall. We have the fall, we have humanity choosing to define right and wrong for themselves, to reject God's rule, to come up with their own thing, to, you know, to violate the one command that they were given, and the whole thing is shattered, at least distorted at least harmed. The, the result of the fall in Genesis 3 is that God places a curse upon the creation. Suddenly there's, it's not just this picture of just bliss and enjoyment. Suddenly there's danger. There's discord introduced to humanity and God, between the humans, and between humanity and this earth, this world, the created world. Thorns and thistles complicate our work. Death, human death, enters the picture. Things are not just simply, oh, let's just enjoy all this forever, though that is how it was supposed to be. The fall happened. Antagonism is all around. But even, even in Genesis 3, we see God promise that he's not going to leave things in this disordered state. He says, I'll put in- enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This first little subtle picture of what's going to happen in the gospel. God is going to send someone who is going to crush the serpent's head. He'll be wounded in the process, but he will be victorious. So even in Genesis three, we see that though, though, though problems have entered, deep problems have entered the picture, this is not the end of the story. So God has a plan not to leave the mess, not to leave the fracturing, not to leave the disorder that's, that's come into his perfectly ordered world, but to, but to heal, to redeem, to restore. And of course, Christian church, we understand that the way that that plan ultimately came about was through a savior, in particular, Jesus Christ. God who entered his creation who who incarnated in human flesh, who chose to, in the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God chose to take on human flesh. The artist entering the story, the novelist entering the novel, the painter entering the paint. This is crazy. He comes in. He identifies with us as close as he possibly can by wedding his divine nature to a genuine human nature in the person of Jesus. He lived and he suffered, and he taught, and healed, and he befriended, and he was betrayed. He lived a genuinely human life in this world, in this broken world. Ultimately culminating, as we've just spent a lot of time reflecting on as a community on the cross, ultimately being killed Suffering to the point of death for the sins of the world but He was raised He was raised to new life and crucially Not as a disembodied spirit Not as a ghost not as figment of people's imagination, but as a real flesh and blood person again Which is a little hint if that's all we knew that oh God is not done With this physical world. He chose to make the world physical and even the resurrected Son of God has not left the physical behind He's embraced it Jesus at the right hand of the Father is embodied still and when he returns when we see him in glory he will be embodied still And it all points towards the culmination of this story, which is what we wait for a new heavens and a new earth New skies and a new land. The heavenly city coming down. God making his dwelling amidst his people with no barrier, with no distance, with no separation. Once again, the curse removed. It's a fascinating verse if you've you've spent much time reflecting on this. This is from Romans 8. Listen to this. Starting in verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see that? He speaks of the creation itself longing, groaning for this disordered state that's been introduced into it, this curse to be lifted. Creation itself is waiting for the perfection, the reconciliation, the restoration, the final healing, the final redemption of humanity because the two are tied together. Isn't that fascinating? Creation longs for you and me to be glorified with Christ one day because it too will be glorified limitation and all this, this curse had to be placed on the earth because humanity could not handle it otherwise. We are not safe for this planet. Now this planet is not safe for us. There is a fundamental connection there, and that will be no more in the glorified state. We are waiting the day when he puts all things right. And that has to do with you in your spirit. It has to do with you in your body. It has to do with the entire created order. Everything together will be restored. That's what we hope for. Did you know that that's what you're hoping for as a Christian? In this hope we were saved. So that's the story. Yes, the picture of sin complicates it. The world is a more complicated place in some ways than it was in Genesis 1 and 2. But the basic idea remains, it's a good world that he's made. It's given as a gift. We are meant to enjoy it. And we will have eternity future to enjoy and to explore it. We'll talk about that more later. Doesn't, that doesn't paper over the challenges of living life in this, this fallen world, this broken state with broken bodies and so on and so forth but it does mean that the brokenness does not get the last word. To conclude, I love the idea. C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this. I think he talks about it in Surprise by Joy, he talks about it in Letters to Malcolm a couple of times. But this idea about following the sunbeams back to the sun He's talking about this very idea, enjoying the good things of life, enjoying the joys and the beauties and the creative activity of God in this life, in this world. He says, yes, enjoy it, but all of it is meant to point beyond itself back to the God who gave it. If we just become satisfied merely with the sunbeam, even quite literally, I am longing, I we got a taste of it yesterday. There's no sunbeams right now. I'm going to keep saying this every week until the sun is back in Portland, but... The sunbeam itself, the glory of just standing in the direct rays of the sun, like there is something so beautiful and peaceful and rejuvenating and energizing and tiring in a good way about that. And that's good in and of its own right. That's tove. But if you're trying to base your entire identity and your entire like, hope and joy in that experience alone, that's going to run out eventually. It's going to turn winter again. That's not the sort of thing that can sustain you. It's meant to point to, the gift is meant to point you to the gift giver. In him is the final joy and final satisfaction and final goodness and final blessing and life eternal, life abundant, life to the full that he promises to you. When we enjoy these gifts, we are meant to have our our hearts opened up towards the God who gave them, not just to turn myopically focused on the gift itself. Receive the gift. Enjoy the gift. But in connection to the gift giver. Amen? Amen. We have more to say about all of this. We've got, got a lot more series to get through, but I want to conclude for now with another poem. And this is an ancient one from the Hebrew Psalms from Psalm 104 so just listen to this bless the Lord O my soul O Lord my God you are very great you are clothed with splendor and majesty covering yourself with light as with a garment stretching out the heavens like a tent he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters he makes the clouds his chariot he rides on the wings of the wind He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and broad bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home, in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both great and small. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground." May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. That's it right there, friends. That's it. Let's pray.